Welcome to Central Queensland Region's Leading and Learning Podcast. These are informal conversations between leaders about educational issues and initiatives. We share them to inspire and inform you so that you may have a greater influence through your instructional leadership. acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land across central Queensland on which we play, learn and work. I respect and honour Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander educators listening. I recognise the stories, traditions and living cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples on this land and commit to building a brighter future together. Hi, I'm Trudy Graham, your host for the show. I'm an Assistant Regional Director in Central Queensland based in Rockhampton. And today I'm really delighted to be talking with Charmaine mckeon Parlett. And Charmaine is one of our Indigenous Pathways and Partnerships Coordinators in Central Queensland. Welcome, Charmaine. Thank you, Trudy, for inviting me along. It's so good to have you. And um, Charmaine, look, in the usual um, way that we start the podcast, let's start with a conversation starter. What's been the most remarkable thing about 2021 so far for you? I think for me it was um, conducting Welcome to Country at Emerald State High School for Scotty Prince. And I thought that was great. Like I'd actually had the honour of doing... Welcome to country for the Prime Minister, but you know, like Scotty Prince was a bit of a legend in our mobs. So I thought that was a highlight. Yeah. <laughs> now, Charmaine, this is going to sound probably completely absurd, but I don't actually know who Scotty Prince is. So okay. you better tell me and anyone okay. else who's wondering yes. who's Scotty Prince. So, um, you know, when you go back into the football things, um, Scotty Prince is um, a footballer actually represented Australia and he's a, a Mount Isa boy that was more or less headhunted by um, football scouts and had the opportunity to go away to Townsville to learn how to play football and that, and he came along, he was part of our NAIDOC celebration as the, um, we wanted to bring in a celebrity and so we were offered the opportunity for him to come to Emerald State High and to meet some of the boys. And what's actually going to come out of this is he's actually agreed to mentor now the Emerald State High School boys over a program which we're working out when we're going to start that. So we was we were sort of looking at when we heard Scott talk, how he had his relationship with the boys, like he was pretty casual, he was pretty laid back. And he talked about his journey as a football player of the difficulties that he had to overcome from when he moved as a 15-year-old boy away from his family, how um, hard that was, the work that he had to put into his not just his football career but into education as well. So he had a lot of information there about why it was important for students to come to school, that the different things that you learn in school that actually went through into your everyday life. And what we were actually seeing during this process was the way the boys were looking at him, the way they were listening to him. And so we felt that this would be the perfect opportunity to see if he would mentor these boys to be their role model and, and he's agreed to do that via teams. Oh, wow. So That is exciting. Yeah. So we're not sure exactly when that's going to start, but that's being negotiated now. Yeah. Mm. Now, Charmaine, what we wanted to do in this podcast was to explore your role as an Indigenous Pathways and Partnerships Coordinator and 
This is following our earlier episodes with Kate and Sophie and Cindy, and Cindy has the same role as you. But you were saying how your role is, even though it's the same, the work is different and unique. So let's explore some of that. Okay. So I think getting into this, it was... I was saying to um, you before, Trudy, that I wasn't sure if being the last in this building cultural capability part of these podcasts was a good thing or a bad thing. I thought, oh my goodness, I need to maintain the integrity of the previous, And but how do we look at this from different content, but that we still refer back to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander education. So first, probably the dynamics. Um, Cindy is Rockhampton and Mackay. My area covers the Central Highlands, Central West and into the Gladstone clusters. So even though Cindy's got the big number of students that come under her schools, I've got the big geographics. So it's how do you do business when you're going into these remote schools where they don't have the services that we have in, in the city school. So I think that has been one of my probably big challenges. Probably also those, um, the P to 10s and the P to 12 schools because the dynamics in those schools are different to a straight primary or high school. Um, and then I look at Sophie's role because she goes right across the region. So whatever I do in my schools, especially around the cultural capability framework, that links back to the RCEC role. So, you know, like she will still always remain the lead around that and then we will... Um, tag tag on I suppose or work with Sophie for those common goals but Cindy and I our three roles our three key priorities are transition and case management so transition and case management is you know it sort of rolls across a few areas at the moment it's around that year six seven transition and in the past it was in that year 11 12 QCE space Case management was exactly the same. It used to revolve a lot around the year 11, 12 QCE, the strategies that we could go into the school to build capability. But now the shift is coming through the CQ RET referral process. So this is now looking at those students that are disengaging from schools, looking at how do we case coordinate these students and then how do we build the capability in them schools and to get those supports in, in place for these students. So that's where I think that shift of that language is starting to come around a bit. Uh, PACE was another big part of ours, was a parent and community engagement framework. But when we would work with schools on the PACE framework, we would have to go in and contextualise them to work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families because PACE didn't really drill down deeply. But that has now been replaced with engaging communities and pairing futures, which I'll talk about a little bit later. So that sort of now sits in that same place. Um, The building cultural capability I talked a little bit before with what Sophie does. So we also did a um, series of cross-cultural intelligence training. Sophie did the Crossing Cultures Hidden History, which was two hours. Cindy then came along and she did policy and legislation, which was an hour, and then I did the PACE or the um, how to engage parents and students. And then that was rolled out as a, probably a learning, an online learning option during the COVID lockdowns. But in saying that, we're all Crossing Cultures Hidden History facilitators, so we can still go out into the schools face-to-face and work there. We've also done... Sophie and I work with the Centre for Learning and Wellbeing in Emerald, rolling out 
the facilitator training so most of the floor staff are now trained in that space so basically what will happen now with say the claw which is coming back to that building capability is I would go and do the cultural capability at the claw but now Lisa Neaton the lead principal she will actually go through it her and her staff and then they'll come back and they'll liaise with us and for us to check that hey are we on the right page so we, we're seeing the big shift and the, and the claw's driving that very, very proactively. So we're seeing that big shift. And then I think the other thing I wanted to put across today in this space, it was going back about how the IPPO role and the structure of the teams changed since 2016 when I came in. And I sort of look at all of this that I'm talking around today, it doesn't have an end goal. And I look at that we started with eight people in the Indigenous portfolio team and there was a couple of people in the youth engagement, but we were all working in silos. We weren't really working, you know, we weren't co-designing, we were sort of all doing our own little patches. And then we sort of joined forces, Indigenous portfolio, a few people were uh, moved across and the IALD went across the curriculum team. Then we formed with the youth engagement team, we came the youth engagement team, and then now, of course, we're the wellbeing engagement team, which is about 20 plus of us. So I think in that six years, I've had like seven line managers or something, so there's been a bit of change there. And then I look at the changes that came with COVID, like we weren't really IT savvy, so it's forced us to be IT savvy. It pushed all of us as an Indigenous portfolio team out of our comfort zone because we had to learn how to use this medium for delivering our cultural awareness when we were face-to-face -face people, that we were people people and then all of a sudden we had to go to IT so it was very difficult. But in hindsight, um, I've enjoyed it because with the, the less travelling compared to what we were doing, there's still, there, there's more time now to do some of the other things that you never quite get, whether it's your admin, like, you know, the, the timesheets and things like that. Um, so I, I thought that was great. I think where I've seen the big change in the department is from 2016 to now, the Indigenous staff within department have got permanent positions and we all have a voice at the table. So it's really important that we have a voice there. And then that means that the students and the families have a voice as well. And then we talked about those roles before, like how teams change, and that's because roles change, and that's based on different reports or different reviews that come down. And as we learn, as we grow through these different roles, I think we become more skilled, which gives us better capability ourselves. And I think what I wanted to say in this section was, that change inevitable, that we adapt to change, it's part of our journey forward. So, and, and I know that's true in school life. Yeah, and sometimes those changes are really unexpected, like the COVID, as you mentioned, Charmaine. Let's now talk about um, some of the work that you are doing and what does that look like in your role? I think it was just where do we drill down in those three core priorities that I talked about. And so one of them was around that everything leads back to your know, Australian curriculum no matter what. And what I was finding I was getting is I was getting a lot of phone calls from schools saying, oh, we've got to roll out this unit. 
we don't feel confident with the cross-curriculum priorities, you know, we don't want to cause any offence and things like that. Are you able to come to our school and do some of the sessions with us? And it was good. I'll mention Springshaw State School, they're a P to 10 school. And the first time I went, I did some of the home economic stuff and the bush tucker and built the relationship in the school. And, and where that led to in the end, was these year 10 students that go on to a private school or a state high school is they didn't have the same opportunity as the bigger schools around different courses they could be offered. So then I started implementing Certificate 2 Vocational Skills and Training at Springshaw State School. And I taught the Aboriginal component of that and showed them how to embed it. And then we built the capability with the staff. So that's the only component I teach now. The, the, the rest of that component is taught by the staff at Springshaw. So those kids now go on to Emerald High or other schools and they have now got four QCE credits and they've got one completed course. So it's actually given them a bit of a leg up on their QCE journey. And so you look at that as that three-year QCE plan. So I'm a, I'm a favourite of yeah, build it in year 10 to take it through. And that's happened across those schools. Any other topic out there that we have capacity to do cross-curriculum priorities, but there's only one or two or three of us, and there is, you know, 100 plus schools. So how do we build capability? Mm. That's probably the big question. And some of the things we do in our 1% is showing the schools how to do that. Yeah. And you've done that in a few other places as well? Yeah. So... Um, Emerald North State School is probably one I will pick on now. So this is this was my home school. Um, I used to run around all the time, you know, like a, a chick with a head cut off at Madoff time, and I'd wear myself out, and the principal said, Charmaine, how about we start coming up with plans? She said, all the skills and the knowledge that you have for culture, how about we create the Madoff model kit, and then you train the staff, and then we get the staff's ownership, and that's where the Madoff model kit started from Emerald North. And we started off, I think, in year one with about six kits and worked out, okay, how can we do this cost-effective? Because the schools were saying, oh, it's very expensive to do this. So we did it really cost-effective. So one, for example, one we did was headband. So we got 10 metres of calico for $60 from um, Spotlight, pre-cut it into class sets, put everything into a class set of 25 with some marquee pens, We'd read a little story first, how the bird got their colours, show a couple of symbols, and then it was an activity. The kids could put it on their head and they could take it home. We did another one, which was a totem key ring. So we'd teach the kids what a totem was. So that was sharing that culture. Then they'd make the key ring and they'd take it home. So I've now grown that to about 34 kids. So, And that school, six years later, still implements that kit system within their school for running their activities. And they do it with the new staff every year that comes along. So there's your sustainability starting to come through. Yeah, I love the way you think about that, Charmaine. Mm. <laughs> so, Charmaine, tell me about the Central Highland Stories Project. Um, this is the most exciting one, I think, in my repertoire. Um, for 15 years, it was my dream, you know, that I would travel around the Central Highlands, I would interview the elders, I would get their stories. And I used to say to my mum, and you'll be one, you'll be on the video, hey mum? She said, what happened in my lifetime? And unfortunately, that was true because the videos were done after my mum passed away. So I had this big dream, and then I seen this video during COVID, and they're at the Bigginton State School, 
got in their cars, the teachers, and they went around and they made these scrolls and they delivered them to the students and they videoed it. And I thought, well, I'm sure we could do that. So I went to the Centre for Learning and Wellbeing. I said to Lisa Neaton, how about we go hit council up for some money and we buy some morning tea and we do this and we do that and we travel around the region and have you got the equipment and we can video? And they said, yeah, we could do that. Or we could put the funding up and we can put a proposal to the budget and we'll turn this into a big cross-curriculum priority project that will have lesson plans and that we can roll it out across the region. And that's where it took off from there. So then we joined forces with um, Central Highlands Regional Council because they had all the permissions for us to go onto the Blackdown Tablelands and Carnarvon Gorge and all that. So then that's where that three-way partnership came from. Uh, Regional Director Kim Fredericks gave permission for it to go ahead. Brisbane Comms Film. So we spent months liaison with um, elders across the Highlands. Then Perry from Brisbane flew in. We spent a week just on a road trip going right across the Highlands, the whole lot of us. And we went from interview to interview. And um, several hours of raw footage was taken. Um, there was a bit of excitement along the way, like Perry was trying to get the um, the drone to land on Blacktown and the wind got underneath it so we nearly lost the drone and all the footage over the top of Blacktown but it, it finally landed. Um, and through that process we looked at the different ways, like the CLAW wanted to do this around the cross-curriculum priorities of having those stories to be available for schools, whether it's through Edge Studio or some other one, Portal Access, that there were lesson plans with it, that this would show teachers, or specifically beginner teachers, how this fitted with cross-curriculum priorities and general capabilities. So this would actually step through. These stories were real because they were from the Central Highlands. So that was that part there. Then we sort of had a bright idea we could make flip charts and we could do this. So we're working on that stage now, where, where to next with those resources. So the CLAW's gold and the department's gold are very similar because we can both use that. That'll have a kickback through all. Plus we can use this as a cultural awareness um, part of our, our cultural awareness training as well because we're actually building those relationships. We're showing other staff how to build relationships with the elders. Part of the project was the principal walk on country, which was spearheaded in Mackay with Cindy Willett. And that same um, process that Cindy used in Mackay for the protocols and the walk on country, we used identical protocols and eight ways framework on the Central Highlands. So we carried the model through, um, and there was a few principals that participated at that at um, Kakamundi which was at Springshaw with um, Daryl Black. And then we actually climbed over the fence and went into where the wagons came through the sandstone belt. And that was just phenomenal. And then finished up at the keeping place in Springshaw where Uncle Lindsay Black had lobbied government under the bringing them home report to, to bring the people home to put them back on country so and the artifacts. So that was all part and parcel of that Central Highlands project. And at the same time, we're, you know, liaising with Kiari around the cultural protocols booklet as well. Then that was a natural progression onto Blackdown Tableland, which was Gungaloo country, and we made that one a little bit bigger, and we met with the ranger and stuff like that. So we got a lot of footage there. 
and then that has now turned into an absolutely massive walk on country. So um, the first walk on country of teachers was 35, and now the medical centre in Emerald is now lobbying for 65 doctors to do the walk on country. Oh, so wow. it's going to come along around out of these stages of this project. So the walk on country and the storage project are all very closely linked. Um, and then we've got one more film to do with the young Lou Elder. And part of that is going to be a feedback of implementing language into Blackwater and Dingo Jeringa schools and around Block. So that's the end result there. So that's a lot of work in progress and a lot of stages, but we're, the editing's nearly finished. So it's in its final edit in Brisbane now. That's a credit to you and your dream to see that happen. So let's talk now about this pilot program that you've been working on with Blackwater State High School. So this idea was floated by the principal and the two deputies approached and said, you know, we would like to do something around behaviour management for a program, you know, that we can have some processes in the school so that we can, you know, like address the, all the different needs of all of our students. So then the, the, then the idea rolled from there and we said, okay, any program we do, why don't we put a cultural lens over it because we all talk the inclusive education strategy, we're talking about all the cultural stuff, so how about we put the cultural lens over And that's where the cultural lens come from. Then the principal was very keen that she wanted the girls to do it. So we said, okay, well, we'll go back to culturally, men's business, women's business. So... Therefore, the principal then stepped in and she took over all the negotiation because she was the woman. And then we said to the DP, sorry guys, you are the guys, um, because this is now men's and women's business. So it's been really good like that because that's a learning curve for the schoolers. And as part of their reconciliation action process, this is sort of playing into all of those lines. So from there, we didn't really know what we were doing and it's pilot and that's the reason it is a pilot because I suppose we're trying all different theories and see what's going to work. So we based it around a few things. There was a few programs out there like um, Deadly Thinking that had some really good tools in it. So we thought, oh, can we keep some simplicity around this and how do we look at, okay, if these kids got these behaviours or if these kids um, don't feel really good and we then we started looking at oh psychology behind this you know like if we give these kids a connection back to their identity maybe this is going to make them feel a little bit better so we sort of did that and then we thought okay we started with the yarning circle you know what is a yarning circle put the kids in and, and then the ones that didn't know we stepped them through a yarning circle in the circle the kids took ownership so they created the rules of the yarning circle and one of the yarn one of the rules of course was um that there was no boys in the yarning circle because it was a girls' group. And so at that very start, which was a few months ago, the girls were very nervous, they weren't very confident. And that's how you'd expect on the first program because they didn't really know me. So you had to build a relationship, you had to build a connection of where this was going. So then we sort of brought it out through the sessions. So now we've done nine or 10 sessions. We used the hand, you know, who do you talk to? So kept it simple. They all put their words in there, and then the CEC at the school, Beth, she types all it, she collates all the data. And then we said, okay, how do we look at this? We look at it as three trees. So we've got this tree that hasn't got many leaves because we're not feeling too good about ourselves, and we capture everything. So we brainstorm with the kids, 
everything they were feeling or what they could see as a negative emotion, brainstormed it on the board and then compressed it into four sections, so four leaves to represent that. That went on the tree. And then the idea of the second tree is around resilience or the strategies now. How do you build resilience? How do you deal with anger management? How do you recognise it? How do you recognise that behaviours are shifting? So it was all that strategy stuff. And that's the tree we're on now. And then the last tree is we've come from here. We've done all these strategies. Then we need to feel good. So we need this big green lush tree that's had a lot of water that's where we're headed to and then we thought oh how are we going to engage these kids because we started losing them a little bit and so went to council and said can we borrow your ipads can you download procreate on it and let's see if we can use this as engagement tool and it has been the best engagement tool ever these kids are designing these trees and at the end they're going to have an art exhibition of it and then these all of the artwork on there will form part of their book and it will form part of the program as well. So this is all ownership of them, they're driving this totally. And what we tried to do was we tried to link this to every department document that we're working under, you know, every Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander student succeeding, the student learning and wellbeing framework for engaging communities. So I think we've done that. And then if we then created, then we're working on a model, which is a bit different, and we thought we might call it Deadly Minds, that it would be based around, as I said, that psychology, so that hopefully this model can work across high schools, big or small high schools, primary schools, whatever, regardless of the issue, that hopefully this model, so we, we'll take that through. So we want to design the book and all the resources and everything that comes with that. So it is a work in progress, and if we can get that successful, that can roll across the CQ so that we can share that across CQ, that this is how you develop your own program within your school, and there you're building your capability. Yeah, that's fascinating work, Charmaine. And has there been interest in this in other places? So Capella's showing interest in this now, um, Emerald High, we're going to trial the boys program of this, but Datsun will get involved here. So all the men will take the Emerald High School program through. So we'll step back then because it'll be men's business. Um, Thierry's keen to do something as well. So the principal's sitting there having a, having a bit of a work around where she would like to go with that, but maybe at the whole school cohort. So, And then I think it's as schools come in and say, oh, we need some support with this or that. And then we just say to them, you know, are you willing to trial something like this? Where would you like to go? So it's mainly based at the moment on schools approaching us for programs. And then we're saying, oh, well, you know, have you tried this? Have you tried that? You know, do you want us to come and build capability? And the idea at the end is if we go in, build capability, and then track the data, we need to put the program in place, track the data, see how the data's going. What benefit has it had for the kids? What benefit has it had for the school? And then if this is looking like it's best practice, then you share it as best practice. That mm. this is another option or another choice. That's sort of bigger picture stuff of, yeah, where it's come from. We'll look forward to seeing how that evolves. Yeah. So Charmaine, the parent community engagement framework you mentioned earlier, so we'll kind of loop back to that now. And what's been the work in that space? That was more or less based around that parent and um, community engagement. So when I was based at Emerald Moore State School, 
we thought, how could we target, there was two issues we wanted to target in school. One was attendance and the other one was getting ICP signed. So we trialled this um, outreach model over a 12-month period and we thought, well, we probably wouldn't have to trial it for 12 months because we've got to build relationships, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And that's what we did, but we actually piloted for three years. <laughs> and we just built onto it and we documented every mistake, every error, everything that we did wrong or right, we documented till the cows came home. And then we worked it out that we had six stages. And the stage one was before we started, all the research, everything we had to do. And then stage two was similar to stage one because it was outlining the program where we wanted to go. Stage three was physical engagement. That was where we did the physical um, home visit. And we incorporated that um, home visit procedure that the department have in there. So we had all the templates, the letters, everything was in there. And then we went from there onto stage four, which was support services. So that's referring out from the schools, you know, if students or parents needed support. And then it was, and while we were doing this journey, we were training other school members to do it. Then the school take ownership of it, department steps back. And the person department when this started was Rebecca Anderson. So she was the department person and I was the school person. So that was the pilot that we started together years ago. Then I went into the department, um, tried it in the high schools and it didn't work. And we couldn't find out why. So then about 10 high schools stepped up and said, we'll trial it. And we changed and shifted the model to adapt it to high school so that it would work. So that, that's where that came from. So speaking about high schools, tell me about your work in terms of transitioning um, primary school year six students into year seven. This is a bit of an unusual space, this, because as IPPOs, when there were four of us, what we would traditionally do at the end of every year is we would be tracking Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students that hadn't enrolled in Year 7. And we would collect the data and we would submit it back um, within our region that would go through to central office. And it was, and we would try during that process to find these children, you know, did they go to private schools, you know, if they disappeared off the system. And it was working really well because we could track every student. And then the SWD funding within the department became available. There was, there was some money that was allocated by our state schooling director for three pilot programs. And Emerald State High School and the six primary feeder schools were one of those chosen pilot programs. And that was because they were starting to work as a cluster anyway to change their transition process. And what we saw there was, at the start, it was that the schools were working together, but they didn't always have the same goal. So that was probably the first thing I observed as a department person. And, and Christy Peathers, who was in the department at the time, she, she drove this program and I was there with her. And the idea came about around looking at that year five as the first transition phase and take us through to year eight. So then it was the talk around teachers from the high school coming down and team teaching in the primary school and then going the other way from the primary school up to the high school. And that was around the Australian curriculum and things like that. So that was just like feeding that through. And it was then those schools looking at what they were hoping to achieve. So whether it was around decreasing SDAs, was it to have more students 
transition from uh, local primary schools into local high school and less into private schools? Was it to maintain the academic performance from primary school to high school? So it was then all them transitions points of how do you make this smoother? So it was a very big learning curve for all them, them schools. So they then introduced surveys into it. And then, of course, luckily, SWORD came along, and it's much easier to now track that data and compare that data. So we've actually got the second transition group going through now, so we're now tracking the data from the first group. So that one at the moment, they are starting to show some results now, but we're only starting to collect the results now. Charmaine, it's just been wonderful to hear you talk about the work and the and the impact that it's had on both teachers and students and it's growing and building momentum and it's a credit to you so thank you for sharing those stories now Charmaine you know because uh, I, I believe you've listened to some yeah. of the podcast episodes you know we do the fast five questions that yeah. aren't so fast so are you ready to play yep I'm ready to play great so Charmaine when and where was your first appointment um, first appointment was 1996 as the Aboriginal Tutorial Assistance Scheme Coordinator at Emerald State High School. And then I moved on to doing my Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander teaching, training, and then became the first CEC at Emerald High in 2008, and then moved on to Emerald North. And then in 2016, I became the IPPO of the department. So that was about 24 years ago. Wow. <laughs> I can see now why uh, Emerald North is like your home school. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Emerald High and Emerald North because I've spent 10 years at both. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Charmaine, when you think about your work, what was the last thing that made you smile? I think it's seeing that shift that's happening across the region like right now. Um, you're seeing the momentum growing now with Indigenous education. So, and that's And that to me is something that makes me smile every day. It's the, the things like the kids in those programs that um, that will walk up to you, you build a relationship with you and they'll call you auntie in a respectful way. They're the things that make you smile because then it makes you realise that you're having an impact, a positive impact on these, these students. And that's what it should be about. It should be about every student succeeding. Yeah, sure is. Charmaine, what's your best book or film recommendation? Cozy Mysteries, um, Agatha Christie. I reckon there's no, I don't think she wrote too many bad books. Uh, so they're my dead favourite. Um, but I've read all her books like 15 times. And then people like Virginia Andrews. And then education wise, Teaching Indigenous Students by Thelma Perso and Pauline Hayward. Um, I really like that as an in, in Indigenous educational resource. Yeah, Sophia so likes that one too. Yeah, yeah that's a good one. And Charmaine, what's your favourite quote? Never forget that walking away from something unhealthy is brave, even if you stumble a little on your way out the door. And yeah. I think that that's what we do sometimes, we stumble a little. Yeah, great quote. Thank you. Now I'm really curious to hear what you've got to say with this one. Charmaine, as far as things to see in CQ, what's our best kept secret? I reckon Kakamundi and Salvatore Rosa. They're actually attached to the Carnarvon Gorge sandstone belt, but they're a lot more inaccessible, especially Salvatore Rosa. It's four-wheel drive access only. You've got to go through a lot of pro, um, properties. So they're not as publicly known as Carnarvon. Yeah, or Blackdown, because they're the other two. They're, they're the real, but 
Kakamundi and Salvatore Rose are definitely well kept secret. Now, if I Google them, will I find them on Google? You should do, but you'll see all these random roads that you won't know where you're going to. Wow. Yeah. Well, that might be why it's one of our best kept secrets. Could be. There's that one, and then, but I think the other best kept secret with those wagon tracks, because they are very. If you didn't know where you're going to find them wagon tracks, you wouldn't find them. The ones in Buckland, so. We had to climb through a few barbed wire fences to get to those wagon tracks. Wow. So that was incredible. And and the gouges were that deep of where the wagons went through the sandstone. You could see the marks. Tell me more about that. Yeah, we went on the um, principal walk on country through Kakamundi was our end goal. And then on the way, the traditional owner, he said to us, he said, come with me and he's, because he's got permission on these properties. And we stopped on the side of the road going towards Salvatore Rosa at Buckland and um, he said come through the fence and we went onto this property and as we walked into this property well, it wasn't too far it was probably two three hundred meters into the property you could see where the wheel tracks the wagon tracks had gouged through the sandstone belt straight through it's just incredible and my daughter was on the tour too and she put her foot in that wheel track and it was higher than her ankle and it was wider than her foot. So you can imagine how difficult it would have been in them days. That's yeah, wow. So yeah, you wouldn't know that's there unless you were in the know, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And thank you um, for being a part of this episode and for sharing your work and what you've done across schools and school communities and the difference that you are making for everyone, Charmaine. Yeah. If you have suggestions or recommendations for future episodes or you'd like to give us the gift of feedback, you can email us at cqcommunications at qed.qld.gov.au. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe in your favourite podcast app. You'll find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher and Deezer. And if you know of an educational leader in central Queensland who may also enjoy listening to the conversations, please help us spread the word by telling them about the podcast or forwarding the email that comes each fortnight with the show notes. Thanks, Charmaine. Thank you for listening to Central Queensland Region's Reading and Learning Podcast. We trust this conversation has given you the information and inspiration to lead so that every student in our region succeeds.